some time went by, and then I'm reading the newspaper, and I read that the FBI has raided the offices of this company, and that the whole thing is is run by by mobsters. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for a free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Spencer Jacobs. Spencer, are you ready to join the mission? I'm ready. Let me introduce you to the audience. Spencer is the global editor of the Wall Street Journal's financial and economic analysis column heard on the street. Prior to becoming a financial journalist 20 years ago, he was a top-rated emerging market stock analyst. He's written two books, the most recent being The Revolution That Wasn't, about novice investors caught up in the GameStop mania. Spencer, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. Well, you know, I, I used to work in a job like you, you were an emerging markets analyst, <laughs> and analysts are supposed to talk to very sophisticated people and market to them all the time. And it, it's it's really, sometimes, so as you know, it's not about the quality of the ideas, it's about the quality of how you present the ideas, and you have to couch it in very complex terms. You can't couch it in simple terms, because then what are you selling? What's the value that you're, you're giving to people? And th that's generally the case in finance too, right? People try to make things seem, a lot of numbers and ratios and, and terminology, and very complicated. But these days, last 20 years, you know, I write for the general audience and Heard on the Street is for a somewhat more sophisticated audience. But the, the whole point of my job is to take what's happening, explain it, bring a little bit of insight into it, but not to baffle people. And you need to explain things to people. You don't want people to be confused. And so that's that I feel is like sort of my, my superpower, if it will, is taking things that are a little complicated, have a lot of moving parts, Although finance is not rocket science, and it is rocket science, and you know when you get into some aspects of it, you know sort of derivatives and what have you, but and simplify it because that is conducive to success in investing and in understanding the business world is is just breaking things down in the best way you can. And maybe um, you could give us like a behind the scenes, like how you're sourcing the ideas how you're then like, and what's your schedule like? Like how often are you publishing and how much lead time do you have? Are you, you know, crunching to the last second or, cause I, I'm thinking about, I used as a head of research at Citibank at CLSA here in Asia, I used to have my Friday, you know, email I sent out and yeah, it was, it was a, it was a, I would say stressful process and just a process that required keeping on top of everything that was going on. I'm just curious, maybe you could just give us a little picture behind the scenes. Yeah, you know, journalism is all about deadlines. And I personally am not bothered by it. I, I would not function without deadlines. When I, I've written my books, I've set all sorts of artificial deadlines for myself, artificial word count targets and deadlines and what have you. And that's how I operate. And so there's a newspaper that's in print. We still, there's newspapers still exist. And if you don't make the print deadline, then the stuff doesn't, you just have a big white space in the paper. So you don't want that. That's never happened. I run a team. I still do write. I'm, a, I guess, the first 
editor of Heard on the Street who also writes for it regularly. But most of the time I edit, there are 13 of us around the globe, including some in Asia, in your region. And we operate around the globe with, we kind of, I have two people who work for me in the other two time zones. So one editing Europe and one editing Asia. And then I'm responsible for the, the bulk of the people in the US. And there has to be enough copy to fill a newspaper and there has to be varied enough copy. And most of the ideas are really self-generated. You know, we we generate them days in advance and other things are generated by by headlines. You had news, I don't know when exactly this will be running, but you had news this week about Binance being sued by the SEC and then a day later Coinbase being sued by the SEC. Well, obviously that was something that we had to to comment on. You know, things things happen and you have to tear up whatever plans you you had to write about something that was more thematic and jump on the news and then you have earnings you know a company's going to report earnings or you know the fed is going to meet or you know that there's going to be a us cpi report or a jobs report that's pretty important for markets so the schedule is either set for you or you you know ideally you can have a long lead time and just work on something really really smart and insightful but it's a mix and for the listeners out there particularly for young people that are thinking about a career you know in this type of career there is a certain excitement about deadline, an intensity about deadline that if that's something that doesn't kind of turn you on, it's probably not the best place to be. But I know I love the intensity and that's what I enjoyed about writing. And so that that's kind of interesting. And, you know, I can remember back in the old days when I was in the US and occasionally in Thailand where I would receive the Wall Street Journal, which was like premium content in my perspective. And there's many people that have read the Wall Street Journal front to back their whole careers. And then of course, it's not just in print anymore. <laughs> it's all online and all that. Right. I'm just curious, for Heard on the Street, are you able to understand like which of the stories that you're doing is drawing more attention and therefore maybe building on that story? Or how does it work as far as you getting more information of what your audience is you know, appreciating? Yeah, absolutely. It's very scientific now. There's more information than you can possibly cope with, really, in, in terms of the audience, because we have programs where I can see if someone clicked on it you know, when it's online, and most mm -hmm. of the readership is online through the, the legacy website, through their iPhone, through their Android device, what site led them to it? Did they come to it organically through the app? Did they come to it linked through you know I, I wrote something last week about the recreational vehicle market I, I wrote it and so i looked at it and you know you it gives you a, a pie chart of where the readers came from and one of the big sources of readers was an rv publication where they kind of i don't know and plagiarize it but they basically copied half the article and then mm. at the bottom there's a link saying read the rest and people luckily did click to read the rest but they had, they had about half of it there so you know stuff like that linkedin twitter not that much through social media, a lot of it is is really through people who who come to the site or through Google, Google News or Google Search, where they're searching for a topic, and then you know our article is one of the the first ones to to come up, and we we know what time of day people watch it. We we even I, I don't really do it, but some people do A B testing where you have two different headlines, mm -hmm. and the headline matters a lot. Sometimes it matters for search engine optimization. But it just what headline catches people's fancy? Sometimes you have ones that are oblique that like an SEO professional will tell you like, well, that's not really going to work. And it works like wildfire. <laughs> I'll give you one example. My colleague wrote a piece at the beginning of this year, and then we turned it into a series 
that we all contributed to called the rich session. He made up the term. He said, I want to write about the rich session because we're not in a recession, but we're in a slowdown. And in this slowdown, the wealthier people, not that they're worse off, wealthier people are always better off, but typically the wealthier people kind of ride out in an economic downturn and poor people really take it on the chin. And now you have pretty full employment, you know, lots of, of job openings, pretty good pool of savings, relatively speaking, for lower middle income people and wealthier people. And you can see the layoffs and finance and especially in tech, they're more anxious. Mm. And it was such a success. It had like a million page views, which is a really a lot even for the Wall Street Journal for any individual article. And like within two weeks, we were getting pitches from PR people about, hey, have you heard about the rich sessions? And that, that's when you know you've <laughs> succeeded when people are basically, we should have trademarked it. You know, people are taking the thing that you've invented and sending it back to you. So that's the ideal. But that, we only hit a few home runs like that a year. That's exciting. And if you think about my audience, who's, let's say, a broad-based audience, maybe 50% of my audience is in the US, 50% outside. Obviously, I have a lot of listeners in Thailand where I am and around Asia. Some people may not have a huge budget to to get, and, and they may not be able to get the, the written format. What's the best way for them to you know, to subscribe and start receiving heard on the street or just the journal in general? That's the sure. kind of lowest cost way. Is it to go on the website? Is it to download the app? Or like, what would you recommend for people? There are always, if I compare us to our competitors, so there's like the Lex column at the Financial Times, which I used to write for mm. until 12 years ago when I came to the journal. There are a few other competitors like Bloomberg Opinion. Not, not only do I think we're the best, we're also the we happen to be the cheapest because you don't have to pay a premium subscription to get the herd on the street. It's just one of the other articles. It's a section you can find it, and there are always deals for the Wall Street Journal. I mean, there are you know, four dollars a month, you know, mm. or even cheaper than that. So, you know, it's not free, I and mean, we have to feed our families. And so, yeah, and and subscription revenue is is more than half of the revenue that the Wall Street Journal gets. And it used to be different. It used to be mostly advertising, but now advertising is because the print paper is not so dominant, we make probably, I think, two-thirds of our revenue through subscriptions. And so you can't sort of give everything away. But it's, mm. it really is not that expensive. There are all kinds of student deals and, yep. and whatever. So it, it's, you know, in terms of the content, you got to think about what a newspaper is. A newspaper is like the length of a book every day, oh, God. right? I mean, there's a lot <clears> of stuff <throat> in there. So I think it's good value for money if you're paying $4 a month for yeah book a day with lots of up-to-date information and the book was written yesterday or written during the day. I mean, that's that's pretty good. Someone told me when I was in graduate school, and that's when I started reading the journal, I used to read, I still do read other newspapers, but they told me that if you read the Wall Street Journal every day, it's like getting an MBA, which is not literally true, but I, I took it as, as a you know literally true. And I was not doing an MBA, I was doing a different kind of degree, but I was taking lots of classes at, I was at Columbia University at the business school. And, you know, taking the MBA finance coursework. And yeah, I mean, there was a lot more of the paper then. It was only in print. Mm. There was no internet in the beginning of the 1990s. But yeah, I would read as much of the paper as I could every day. I loved getting it. I mean, it was like yeah. I went crazy for it. Yeah. So I'm going to put in some links. I'm going to search around and go through some stuff to put in some links for everybody who's listening or viewing if you're not subscribing, I mean, we have to face the fact that the competition in the media space is so tough that number one, maintaining a position 
like the Wall Street Journal is impressive. And the second thing is that we get the benefit of the competition because as you say, the price is quite low. So I'm going to put that in so everybody can, you know, check it out and follow follow what you're doing with Hurt on the Street as well as the overall everything that's in in the journal. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever and since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be. Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Okay, so I moved out to Eastern Europe. I was very excited about all the changes that were going on, the fall of the the Berlin Wall and the opening up of the region. And I wanted to make money, but I also wanted to see history being made, kind of a twofer. And I moved out to Hungary because my mom and dad are from there and I'm bilingual. And it was a good way, you know, no, I wrote to all these investment banks and said, hey, I'm bilingual and whatever. I wrote to their offices in New York and other places. And a few wrote back, but they're like, no, I don't think so. But then, of course, everyone was really desperate for people who were bilingual and bicultural in the region. And so I basically did different internships when I was in graduate school just to get the addresses. There was no internet, like I said, you know, in mm-hmm. 1991, 92, 93, as you recall, that did not exist. And so I got people's addresses, wrote them letters, called them on the phone when possible. It was an expensive long distance call and said, hey, I'm going to be in Budapest on this week, you know, and I got one of those courier flights. You remember those, like there were like these really cheap flights you could get before UPS and FedEx were so efficient and you basically took someone's box abroad and then you got like an almost a free flight. You couldn't take a suitcase. So I wore my suit, took a, <laughs> a box to Helsinki knowing who knows what was in it and then got a connecting flight to Budapest and had all these interviews with the local accountants and banks and stuff like that. And they all offered me jobs because they were like, that's great. And so I got my start. I was a country analyst in Hungary, and I, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, mm. I sat down. And what year was I, that? So I, I did not know what I was doing. I had no idea. I mean, I was hired, and I gave a very convincing spiel, but I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I was hugely, I had like a real kind of imposter complex. And, you know, would meet these these fund managers who were very wealthy, very nicely dressed, very suave, talking about all these things that they had done. Of course, they only talked about the good things they had done. And I just thought that they were so smart. And they would talk about how much money personally that they had made investing too. Mm. And the, the people at the investment bank as well, my my boss included, he told me when he hired me that like, oh yeah, last year was the first year that I made more in salary than I made investing in like a decade. And I was like, well, how much do you make investing? Because his salary is really high. I mean, I just thought these guys I thought like you know, if I if I follow their lead, I'm going to be really rich. And so I didn't have money at first. As a matter of fact, Andrew, my, my first investment, I phased, say $5,000. I went home to go see my girlfriend, my mom and, and whatever in the States, went for a friend's wedding. And I wrote a check for $5,000 to Fidelity Investments. And I was so proud of having saved $5,000. And I made two investments. This was in 1994, beginning of 94. We're end of 93. And one was a Southeast Asia fund. And you know all about this. <laughs> Top of the market, half of it went in there and half of it went into a US bond fund, which also was about to hit a bear market in 1994, as you recall. So that's not my worst investment, but that was pretty bad. That was like mm-hmm. a, a wake up call. I, you know, kind of suddenly kind of dawned on me that it wasn't so simple to make money investing, but I was undeterred. And I would ask people, and some of the worst investments, really, if you think about it, are things that you don't do, right? So there was cell phones were taking off. I did not get a cell phone, I think, until 1996, but 
1995, I asked the analyst who covered Nokia, this looks pretty good. I mean, what do you think? I mean, this is, do you think that I should invest in? And he gave me some, he really discouraged me. And I think he basically, like he had just changed his call on it. It was a totally tactical call. But I mean, I, what I wanted was some investment that do really well. And you remember like every cell phone in the world was like a Nokia or an Ericsson five totally. years later. Like it would have been an amazing investment. And in, in Bangkok, and it was all Nokia. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> it was like like Apple is today. And I was like, okay, well, he knows what he's talking about. And he did, but obviously his, his long-term vision was was lacking. And I was looking for something to put money into and just not check it for five or 10 years. And then I met a fund manager who was very suave, very sophisticated, and he offered a an investment to me. I mean, it wasn't his company, but he he sort of you know put his hand around my shoulder and said, "You should look at this company called YBM Magnex. Really interesting. And they do this stuff. They make these permanent magnets, and it's really high tech. It's very cheap. Has a P ratio of I think it's like eight or nine, which is very low." And I looked it up and read the you know annual report, and I, I still don't know what a permanent magnet is, but it sounded impressive and very high tech. And they had all these PhDs working for them. It was a Canadian company, and they, there are all kinds of red flags in hindsight. Things that, like as an analyst, you really should know, right? And not only did I invest in it, my first savings, kind of besides that bad investment I made at Fidelity Investments, I you know I bought the stock, and then I told. My good friend, who's now one of my best friends, you know, we, my colleague, that this guy had told me about it, and he invested too. He invested the same amount of money that I had. It was actually like not a small amount of money, not at the time, mm. for sure. And you know, some time went by, and then I'm reading the newspaper, and I read that the FBI has raided the offices of this company, and that the whole thing is is run by by mobsters, and that the thing was like just a front. The entire thing was a fraud, and it was run. By this guy named Semyon Mogilevich, who was the godfather of the Russian mafia. And of course, it went to zero. And there were years of, you know, I just would read articles and I felt so terrible. I felt much more terrible about having told my friend to invest mm. in it than investing in it myself. But it was a total zero. And I mean, it's I, obviously there, there are other zeros in people's investing lives, but this is the worst kind of zero because they just go to zero because the company did poorly and. I'd kind of taken a flyer. I just had no idea. I just went completely on this guy's word, who sort of disappeared. And actually, I looked him up right before the show. <laughs> he's he's a professor somewhere teaching at a bit a business school now. So I won't say his name or where it is, but you know, I guess he he thought it was good. He wasn't you know like raising money for the company. My little bit of money did not make much of a difference. But that is, I was so embarrassed. And you know, for years, you know, I'd, I'd articles, the prosecution and the liquidators, and I think forty-five people were indicted, and the guy kind of escaped justice. And then later, he was—I'm not sure what happened to the guy. I think he's in Russia or Belarus somewhere, still, still free. But like all the sort of accomplices, and the whole—the whole thing was fake. Mm. And how would you describe the lessons that you learned from that? You know, no one is going to tell you a great investment. No one—I mean, you should not, especially if you don't investigate it yourself. And I. You know, in hindsight, I of all people, I mean, not that I was a very experienced analyst at the time, but I, I had the the tools to investigate it. And there were all kinds of red flags and in hindsight. First of all, it had gotten its its start and not to denigrate Canada, but Canada has much looser securities regulations than the United States does. It got its start on a junior exchange, which is 
filled with all kinds of flaky companies did a reverse merger bought this company in the US you know i didn't know what a permanent magnet was it had these activities it was suspiciously cheap and i really couldn't explain to you what the company did i mean if you asked me i'd say oh yeah they have this business making permanent magnets whatever the hell that is and it just the guy was just so suave and convincing and i just wanted someone to tip me on onto the next big thing and mm. i have to say that you know over the years i mean there have been cases when people have have told me you should invest in this thing and i was much more cynical it was after that of course and then i regretted not not doing it and there's a there's one case my sons bring up all the time to tease me when someone asked me to invest in an airline it wasn't even like a didn't have an airplane yet it was just a business plan and by that time i had been, you know been in the business a longer time i think i was just about to become a financial journalist but i had some savings and i was like what are you crazy like you know and i read to him some like quote that warren buffett had made about how airlines are terrible investments and any right thinking capitalist would have shot down wilbur at at kitty hawk if he had you know and no way and i would have made millions of dollars it has turned into a huge success and i i would have gotten in when it was at the stage of like a business plan on a napkin basically so you know those are the breaks you have to miss out on those things sometimes at the time it seemed very risky and much more risky than investing in a, a listed company that you know had accounts and everything so mm. there you go i mean you you need to do your own research you need to be diversified certainly don't invest more than you can lose which i i was making good money so you know i i guess i could afford to lose it you know and then i told my friend about it and he invested it i mean I guess he's much less at fault because I told him to invest yeah. in it and he was also an analyst but he also didn't really yeah. investigate it and it just sort of I was like really too embarrassed to to say anything about it for years you know and I wound up making you know pretty good money in the next several years so it just it seemed I won't say it's a rounding error but it it wasn't a, a devastating loss but still mm -hmm. it was a very embarrassing loss and and a lesson to be learned just don't don't take investment tips. People, you know, those who say don't know and those who know don't say. That's generally the case. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Uh, maybe I'll share a few things. The first one is do your research. And what I like to say is one rule is never buy a stock recommended by a person. No. Whether that's by phone call, by in person. And many people will will respond to that by saying, but Andrew, how am I going to find a stock if I'm not getting a recommendation from someone? But everybody who's recommending something has their motivations behind it, which you don't know. And therefore, it's not to say that you wouldn't invest in that, but you need to do your research once mm -hmm. you do that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you reminded me of episode 62 with Jeremy Newsom a long time ago where he basically invested his some of his father's money in his first investment. It went really well. He went back to his father and he said, hey, let's do the next one. And his father gave him access to more money and he proceeded to lose 100% of that money. And it turned out that that was 100% of his father's retirement savings. Oh, wow. Okay. And so when you talk about the feeling of shame, of guilt, of you know the way that you feel when you tell somebody something, you know, I think it's a good lesson and you've been real open about that feeling. It's a great lesson for the listeners and the viewers out there to make sure when you are into something that you're really excited about, calm yourself, 
down when it comes to your friends and family, because if it goes wrong, you're going to feel awful. And so that's the second thing that's really critical is, you know, focus on taking care of yourself, but be very careful about starting to promote something to other people because it can lead to some really painful experience. Anything you would add to that? Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would add to that is let's say that history had worked out differently and that this guy had told me about some great investment that mm. I had never heard of before. And I did the perfunctory research that I did, which really was perfunctory because I had no idea what I was looking at. And I'd made 10 times my money and it had been a great investment. I would have thought that that I was a genius and success is the worst teacher. So, you know, I, I wrote this book about GameStop mania and a lot of the people who participated in that, they opened their first brokerage accounts right around the time that the pandemic began. There were mm -hmm. about 10 million brokerage accounts opened by young people, Gen Z and millennials, mm -hmm. right around that time because the stock market was a very exciting place. And you really could not go wrong. So in the mm -hmm. year from the pandemic bottom until a year later, 96% of American stocks went up. And the stupidest stuff went up the most. The things that were sort of the you know financial influencers on TikTok, the things that didn't have any profits, pro the, an index of profitless companies, went up the most. So the sorts of things that other young people were egging you on to buy, whether through ulterior motives or just because it seemed cool, went up the most. And that turned out to be a horrible initiation into investing for that group of people because they thought that A, that it was easy and B, that that they had some, some knack for it mm -hmm. because they had picked so many winners. And they proceeded obviously to have a terrible time last year and many people kind of threw in the towel. So yeah, I guess I'm fortunate in a way to have started out with such a, a bad and embarrassing experience because it made me think very carefully. It probably made me too cynical in a way. I probably have missed out, like not just the airline, but other things that I could have invested in. And these days, because I'm a journalist, I don't invest in individual stocks. I invest in funds, which is mm -hmm. not the road to overnight riches for sure, but is actually the the soundest thing I think for most individual investors to do is as kind of plain vanilla and boring as that sounds. You know, I, I think if you want to, if you fancy yourself a, a stock picker and you want the intellectual exercise of investing, do it with a small amount of your money. Yeah. Don't do it with you know with the bulk of your money, because if you you invest in diversified, low cost funds, buy and hold, keep things there, don't try to tie on the market. You'll do okay. You'll do better actually than 85% of fund managers over any 10-year period. So you'll actually be doing really well. Statistically, that's true. And then if you really want to sort of, you know, test your your metal, and, and it might be luck anyway, but if you want to, you know, sort of play the game, play the game with a minority of your money and a portion that you can lose. I mm. think that's that's a very important lesson. You know, one of the things you just talked about is the idea of the index fund, the benefit of using some sort of fund or index fund is if you're in a position of privileged information about stocks, you know, one of the steps that you want to take, at least I know in the CFA curriculum, is to avoid even the appearance right. of taking advantage of inside information or something. And so that's also a benefit of doing that for those people that are in that situation. And also, I think that the other thing is what's kind of fun is when you look at people over time and how their perception of risk and of investing are shaped by these different events that happen in their life. 
And one last thing is when you talked at the beginning about investing in the Southeast Asia fund, which I believe was roughly around 1994, which was about the time that I started as an analyst here in Thailand, the stock market collapsed by about roughly 85%. And in US dollar terms, more like 90 to 95%. But the thing that I want to highlight is that the stock market in Thailand is still not back to the 1994 high. Wow. Okay. And that's the same case after the US Great Depression, that it wasn't until World War II eventually got the US stock market out of it and through World War II. So 1935, let's say to 1955 or so. And then you have the Japanese economy, the Japanese stock market that still, you know, it's taken 30 some years to get back just to where it was at its prior peak. And I've I've never done the any research on it, but I've always had the opinion that the reason why, one of the main reasons why is because there's a generation that gets wiped out. Mm-hmm. And then that generation, the risk and the pain that they suffered prevents them from participating in the market. And so there's nobody participating in the market until a whole new generation comes. And so I'm just thinking about the the meme story and all the young people, because it's not just meme stocks, it's crypto that just wiped out so much money for young people that it could be that we have, now America's a little different because you have international participation in the stock market. So even if a portion of the youth are not participating in the stock market for the next 20 or 30 years, it still could be that there was you know, foreign participation, but it's just a theory that there's a generational impact that doesn't change. People get their perception of the market from that first extremely painful event. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's so interesting. You know, the, That generation in the, the late 1920s, that was really the first time that the broad American public invested in stocks. Before mm-hmm. that, it was always seen as sort of a casino controlled by insiders. And you know, this is still before the SEC existed and all these protections, but it was seen as, as a kind of a legitimate, not a form of gambling. For the first time, it was seen as a legitimate thing. The first mutual funds really began to, to appear in the 1920s. They're called unit trusts, and they generally did not feel comfortable investing in stocks. So had you, mm-hmm. had you purchased stocks at the depths or near the depths in 1932, you would have done very well. I mean, I think the, the stock market had a P ratio of five or six, had a dividend yeah. yield of seven or 8%. I mean, it was, you know, obviously with the benefit of hindsight, a great time to jump in, even if you were a little bit early or a little bit late in terms of, of hitting the bottom. But it would be 25 years before the Dow Jones Industrial Average would get back to its previous level. And 25 years later, it wasn't the same people. The people who were 30 years old or 35 years old weren't participating. 1954 was a great year for the, the stock market, by the way, the year that it finally went over the, the 1929 hump. It was a whole new generation that really wasn't scarred by that. This generation that got into the meme stocks, I see a different problem with them because it wasn't such a jarring wipeout. They they did not have a lot of money at stake. They had maybe their stimulus checks. They had small amounts of money. It was amounts of money that maybe they were embarrassed in obviously it's painful to lose money. It's always more painful to lose money than it is pleasurable to make money. But I think the problem with this this generation is that they have this notion of stocks or cryptocurrencies as being like a line that goes up. They don't know why mm. it goes up. It's something that you need you need to get in early and it's a whole sort of it's a greater fool theory. They were buying, you know, Hertz when it was bankrupt. 
they were buying all kinds of companies when they were known to be worthless when people on on television with no you know dog in the fight were saying don't buy the stock it is worthless it has gone bankrupt you will lose all your money and people were saying what do you know or you know it's going up and it doubled yesterday and it's going to i'm going to try to get in on this train and then get out and find a greater fool and that that's very damaging because that's not the basis of investment the investment is is literally something that you know that's it's speculation rather than investing mm-hmm. and there is a difference between the two speculation is more of a gambling type of activity and investing is something that you could put it in a drawer for 10 years and be pretty confident in it and the other thing about investing is that the stock market exists in order to raise capital you know if people generally come to think of the stock market as something that you you just take a flyer you get in get out and you got lucky and you know you picked the right time and they were they oh somebody on on twitter was talking about the stock and it it went up and didn't i get lucky that's that's messed up because the stock market exists so the next apple can be born right so so i mean obviously there are a lot of companies that want to be the next apple that don't make it the vast majority do not but the next apple is raising money today in the stock market and in 20 or 30 years it'll be apple the way apple is today and if that company and it might not be doing anything especially sort of shiny or interesting that kind of captures the public imagination if it can't raise money if basically people view the the stock market as a sort of more like a gambling parlor then that hurts the ability to form capital and that's bad mm. yeah I and mean, it's markets i mean all the markets around the world are trying so hard to have deep markets and good trading volume and all that america's got all of that so let's just hope that people can you know maintain that so let me ask you based upon what you learned from this story and what you've continued to learn in your life what would be one action that you'd recommend for our listeners to avoid suffering the same fate one action that i would recommend and i think this is just the most common sense thing that i i recommend to any neighbor stranger whatever is that they should stop looking for the needle in the haystack they is not a productive exercise there's a very small chance, even if they have a, a friend or neighbor, as we, we talked about my biggest, my most embarrassing, worst investment, right? Very few people want to talk about that. And when you meet someone at a cocktail party, they do not talk about that. They talk mm-hmm. about when they made a killing. People people tend to play up the positive and downplay the negative. Don't fall for that. The vast majority of investors, I mean, the majority of stocks lose money relative to risk-free investments. That's a given of US stocks, not to mention stocks in other countries where the markets aren't as well regulated like Canada where IBM mm. Magnets was. I mean, I, I don't know what the numbers are like there, but they, they probably are not any better, right? So instead of looking for the needle in the haystack, buy the whole haystack. You're not going to get as rich because that needle is in there. It's going to go up the apples and Amazons and what have you, plus all the failures. But you get, you're basically buying into a big diversified pool of investments that, you know, unless the society collapses, you know, unless you're, you know, had, had an in, index fund existed in Tsarist Russia in 1915, you'd have lost all your money in 1917, no matter what. Obviously, there's no no getting around that. You had you had bigger problems. But assuming that that American capitalism continues and that the economy doesn't fall off of a, a cliff permanently, we don't have a Japanese type scenario. And that even if we do, mm. because the Japanese stocks it's like they went to zero, right? Mm. They continue to pay dividends and took a few decades, but they got back mm. to where they where they were in 1990 you'll do okay. And even if there's inflation by owning stocks, mostly rather than fixed income instruments, you'll do okay because, because stocks are a natural inflation hedge. So mm-hmm. obviously, you know, don't, 
betted on a very risky index, but there are broad-based indexes with very low cost to invest. And this is something you could not have done decades ago, mm, by the way. You, know, you you hear all those stories like, if you had invested a dollar in 1926, it would be worth you know, $121,000. Like, well, no, it wouldn't because there's no S&P 500 index fund. You couldn't, even just investing in just a basket of stocks that represented the market, you would have been charged money to reinvest the dividends. So it used to be really expensive just to gain an entry ticket into the stock market. Today, it's very cheap. Mm. The, the costs are, are basically zero. It's a huge gift to you. You can reinvest your dividends for free. There are all these tax-efficient vehicles. Just stick the bulk of your money in that. I know it's boring. Mm. People don't want to hear it. And they kind of nod and say, yeah, you're right. And then they go out and, and buy something dumb anyway. And I, If I can convince 1% of the people listening to this who were thinking of, of buying some hot stock to do that, then that's that's 1% you know, more than... And we're doing it before. It's, it, that that is really the the route to success. Be kind of cheap and lazy. Buy a fund that you don't have to look at and don't worry about it and don't get spooked by headlines. Especially, just stay in there. As a matter of fact, you know when you blood is running in the streets, that's when you want to re up your investments. You know, so that's my advice. It's a great resource. The investing world today is far more individual investor friendly than it ever has been. And ladies and gentlemen, spoken by a man who wrote the book on. GameStop mania. <laughs> so is the index fund your recommended resource or are there any other resources that you'd recommend? I mean, I think that another resource that I would recommend, at least to those people in the United States and a few other markets and people are listening to this in other countries, but I think this is spreading, are robo-advisors. Robo-advisors are, are a, a very good resource. Robo-advisors are basically, it's not a robot, it's an algorithm. Mm -hmm. So instead of Sort of, you know, I don't know. You know, you know, you might not know how much to put in, into an mm. index fund. When you get dividends, you might not know to reinvest them. Or let's say if this, you put money into, you know, sixty percent into stocks and forty percent into bonds, and then you check it a decade later, and then you're ninety ten, right? Something not appropriate to your risk profile. The robo advisor is basically a very cheap mechanical advisor that's appropriate for most people who, especially who don't have a lot of money. An actual advisor is even better, I think, as long as it, the, that person is a fiduciary. That's a legal definition. You should always ask your advisor here in the United States if they are a fiduciary and only invest with them. someone who has to be prudent about your investments, not someone who's a, just a salesperson selling you some overpriced annuity. Only invest with fiduciaries. But a robo-advisor basically does it on autopilot and does it as cheaply as possible. They typically charge about a quarter of a percent of your assets a year or even less. And they will act in a very tax efficient way. So they'll they'll sell your losers. They know what your tax bracket is. They will rebalance your portfolio on an automatic basis. Which, by the way, is a that is a way of being contrarian. If you mm. rebalance your portfolio according to some mechanical formula, the way a robo advisor does, well, you could do it yourself if you're mm. uh, sophisticated enough. That is a huge edge over the years because basically. You hear about people who kind of buy low and sell high. How do you do that? Well, let's say you have a portfolio of fairly risk-free investments and a portfolio of fairly risky investments like stocks, which let's face it, are, are pretty risky in the short term. They're more, much more volatile. And the stock market has gone down a bunch and bonds have gone up a bit because there was a flight to safety. Well, all of a sudden, whatever percent you had in each, when the next anniversary of setting your investments has come around, you're way out of kilter. You, you have... Mm -hmm. Less stocks than you allocated to, and you said 
my risk tolerance is that I will have this much in stocks. Well, you're going to be, in order just to get back into balance, you're going to be acting in a contrarian way. You're going to be moving, you're going to be zigging where everyone else is zagging because they will be kind of running away from the stock market and you'll be buying stocks, not yeah. necessarily the bottom because no one buys at the bottom except liars, but you'll be buying stocks once they've gone on sale and you'll be selling some of your bonds once they've been bid up in a, a flight to safety. So by doing that on a regular basis and vice versa, by the way, you mm -hmm. know, when stocks have been in an epic tear and they're they're a much bigger part of your portfolio than they really should be based on what you assessed as your risk tolerance, then the robo-advisor or if it's tar a target date fund will do the same thing, will on a given date on the calendar, sell down those stocks and buy more bonds and kind of take some money off the table. So it's it's a really good strategy that in the long run adds to your performance. If you had a half a percentage point or a percentage point to your performance over decades of savings, it's huge. You know, do, get out Excel or a calculator and, and do the calculations and tell me what you see. It's it's a gigantic, it's a huge boon to your long run size of your nest egg. So yeah. those are great resources. Again, I don't, you know, I should have like gotten a commission from some of these robo advisors. I'll, I can mention a few in the U.S., but you can. I'm, I'm thinking about like, well, I think now Vanguard and Fidelity have their own. Schwab, yeah. I think, has its own, and then they're like Wealthfront is one of the ones here. Is Betterment, Betterment still one? You know, they're 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 a, a bunch, but one of the sort of better known, reputable robo advisors. They're all much of a muchness, and I, I I do recommend them to people. All right, last question: What's your number one goal for the next twelve months? <laughs> My number one goal for the next twelve months is to make sense of this kooky economy. You know, I mean, professionally, that is my goal. I think that this is a really. I mean, you could say that any time we're at a crossroads. This is a unique time. We're in a unique time. We have several indicators that are historically reliable that are telling us that the United States economy is going to go into a recession. You know, when the U.S. catches a cold, the or sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold, right? Yeah. So that's basically we're talking about a global downturn in all likelihood. And then we have several indicators that are completely inconsistent, where there never has been a recession. So this is the most difficult economy to read. And so my goal professionally. And this, of course, cuts across all the things that we write about in the world is to understand what's going on and be nuanced and don't get caught in a head fake. When people say, you know, I'll, I'll go and speak to a, a group of, of individual investors or whatever, and they're like, you know, you, you're telling us not to take advice from people. You're telling us to just invest in index funds and not to chase these individual stocks. You write about individual stocks in your column. You write about there might be a bull market, there might be a bear market. How do you reconcile that? I'm like, well, that's what people want. You know, I mean, there's a there's a huge audience of, yeah. yeah, I don't know what else to say. There's a huge audience of people who who crave that. I try to obviously, I have no agenda. I'm not, you know, mm. I can't even accept bus fare from uh, any outside organization. So so that I, I'm not kind of corrupted, you know. And so, you know, I'm calling it like I see it, but certainly not necessarily calling it consistently correctly. But I want to just just intellectually and and for the reader's interest yeah. to sort of to get get things right into figure out what's going on. That's always what I'm trying to do, but especially now, it's just a total head-scratcher. It's it's a really weird but interesting moment. And here we are out in emerging markets where we're on the, the whipsaw impact of a U.S. recession. If it happens, it can hit us particularly hard. So we're all interested in that. And I think that that 
that is a uh, a big challenge for all investors. So, and you've got a, a good enough flow of information that you're you can judge that. I think when I look at it, it's a bit muddled. I have enough information to say I feel kind of negative, and these signals like the inverted yield curve and unemployment at an all time low, knowing that that's kind of happens just before recession. But on the other hand. Also, you have an element that wasn't there when we started in the markets, and that is the Fed. You have this money printing machine that can basically go in and pump up the stock market at any time. And the Fed has yet to go in and buy stocks. They came up with a scheme to buy bonds in the 2000 collapse which was an interesting method that they did to get around kind of their guidelines by having the treasury set up a separate entity and then the Fed using that entity with BlackRock to signal that they're going to buy bonds. Uh, really, it didn't take much money, just the indication that the Fed would do that. And so you've just got you know all kinds of, of other factors. So it's a laudable challenge for the next 12 months. <laughs> yeah, it is, yes. Well, Listeners, there you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join the free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Spencer, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of A. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? My motto is, and it's my motto outside investing too, is be cheap and lazy. You know, that is the formula for success. Maybe not in outside of investing, but it is in investing. Yeah. Cheap and lazy. Keep it simple. That's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.